0: to take just a moment because I'm feeling especially wintry and cold this morning. Anyone else just wake up and it's like, what happened to the sunshine? It's gone. And yesterday was like the most schizophrenic weather in the history of Michigan. And it was crazy. Uh, But I wanted to honor a group of people who every single week during the school year are here really really early many times show up when it's still dark and they set up these chairs and they make sure it's warm in here they make sure the stage is all put together and signs are out and i just wanted together as a church to honor all of those who serve on our setup team so can we put our hands together thank them i really really appreciate uh, the people that set aside early early mornings on a weekend who don't do this for a living to serve people like you and like me, that means a lot to me, and I know it means a lot to you. And many of those guys are not going to say, "Yeah, I'm on that team," or wear like a I'm a rock star shirt. Uh, but what they will do is serve faithfully week after week, and I really appreciate that. I value that. That matters. And. Uh, Again, yesterday I was kind of laughing to myself at least because I kept looking at my weather app and seeing like the percentage of snow just change. Have you ever done that? You like, you wake up and it's like 10 and then it becomes 30 and then it's 40 and it's 50. Uh, I've just learned that weather percentages are completely irrelevant. That's what I've learned in, in my long 28 years of living. That's kind of what I've decided, that they're kind of irrelevant. I just need to plan for the worst and hope for the best. That's kind of how I approach weather, at least when it comes to Michigan Percentages matter, though, like in normal life, because, uh, for instance, NBA season, basketball just started a couple weeks ago. I'm so excited. At least once a week, I'm glued to my TV watching my Boston Celtics lose mainly. Sometimes they win. Um, But as I'm watching that, if I was watching that, or if I was even a basketball player, just pretend that that was even a remote possibility, if I shot for (laughs) that was way too many laughs. That's not really how that one was supposed to go. Um, but if I was shooting 41.9% from the free throw line, I'd be riding the bench or I'd be in the G League already because that's a bad free throw percentage. Uh, if you were just about to get married and, and I got the privilege to be there and I came up as your pastor, guys, I'm so excited for you. This wedding was incredible. Your marriage is gonna be so, such a blessing, not only to you, but to those around you. But just so you know, you got like a 41.9% chance of making it. You would hate me, right? You would not be pleased. You're like, why did I invite this guy? Like that's, that's not a great percentage for, for making your marriage over the long haul. And you could play that out percentages. Maybe you work in a business with numbers. They really matter. Percentages matter. But there's a percentage that for me in the last week or so, and I was familiar with it and just kind of came back to my memory as I was preparing and studying for today, is a percentage of 41.9%. You're like, why is that so important to you? Forty one point nine percent represents the amount of people in our world who have not yet heard the gospel. Forty one yeah, for real. Forty one point nine percent of people that walk planet earth just like you and just like me have never had access to hearing that Jesus loves them, is for them, has sacrificed his life so that they could be made whole, so that they could be healed. All the things we sang about unaware completely have missed. That message, and it's fascinating as you read back through the past couple hundred years of Christian history. Maybe you're a Christian in the room. Maybe you're asking questions. But in the early 1800s, there was this movement of young people who decided that that percentage—and that was much higher at the time, obviously—but that percentage that they had in their day was not was not going to be okay with them. That they were not content to just see that percentage increase, or at least stay the same. They weren't content with that. And so there began this early modern missions movement. And one of those people who led that in the early, early 1800s was named William Milne. Now, William Milne uh, grew up in a very similar environment that most of us did. Had a great family, was a part of it, went to college, but felt this burden, this calling to do something about that percentage. And I want to read just a slice of his biography. And this is uh, wrote just a couple years ago about him. A band of brave souls became known as one-way missionaries two centuries ago. They bought tickets to the mission field without the return half. Instead of suitcases, they packed their few earthly belongings into coffins. As they sailed away, they waved goodbye to everyone they loved and all they knew, knowing they'd never return home. William Milne was one of those missionaries. He set sail for the New Hebrides in the South Pacific, aware that the headhunters there had martyred every missionary before him. Milne didn't fear for his life, though, because he'd already died to himself. His coffin was already packed. For 35 years, though, he lived among that tribe. He, when he died, they buried him in the middle of the village and inscribed this on his tombstone. When he came, there was no light. And when he left, there was no darkness. That's William Milne's story. William Milne didn't live as long as most of us will live. He didn't have the comfortable life that most of us have. He decided that he wasn't okay until his calling to reach unreached peoples was fulfilled. They actually described this band of young, naive missionaries as experiencing what they called inverted homesickness that they would go to these overseas places and serve and proclaim the gospel, many of them giving their lives, but would describe feeling that they were more at home in that place than they were the place that they had left. They were so passionate, their calling was rich, it was fulfilled, it was real to them. And they described this inverted homesickness. Now, you're probably just like me. I hear that story, I think about those people, I think about packing my coffin and leaving everything. But just as a reminder, when I moved from Detroit to Byron Center two and a half years ago, I brought all my stuff. I was good. I wasn't really coming expecting to never return back to the place that I once called home. I just, I didn't think that way. I didn't think about that. And if I'm honest, when I read stories like that or I think about uh, this whole idea of fulfilling your calling, there's many times where it just brings up for me a sense of apathy, Like, well, I can't really go that extreme, so I'm just gonna live in this weird in-between, and some days I'm all in, some days I'm not, some days I'm just tired, some days I'm on fire for what God wants to do through me or through our church, and there's probably similar emotions you felt. Maybe it's frustration, like, I know that's the life God has for me, but here's the one I'm actually living. Or maybe it's anxiety and worry. Like, God, am I missing something here? Am I doing the right things? Can you just, like, write it in the sky, like, hey, John, you're good. Like, that would be nice some days. And it leaves with just a range of emotions. And I read stories like Williams, and I'm like, why am I not like that? What's different about him than I currently experience? What's different about him than what maybe you experience on a daily basis? I want to take us right back to this incredible parable in Luke 14. In Luke 14, if you have your Bibles, uh, I'd love you to open it, and you never know what God wants to say to you specifically this, But in Luke 14, verse 25, we kind of read in on this scene, and Jesus continued to, continues to teach. He's at the table, but he's, large crowds are starting to gather, and in verse 25, here's what we read. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. They're moving with him. And turning to him to them, he said, "...if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers, sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple." Whoever doesn't carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build, but they weren't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to Oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other's still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have can't be my disciple. That's intense. Let's just take a deep breath right after that. And you're probably like, well, I thought Jesus wanted me to love everybody, but now he's telling me to hate everybody. I'm not really sure. What am I supposed to do as, as a disciple, a student of Jesus? Maybe you're in the room and you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. And this is like, I am really confused by what Jesus is saying here. And maybe you've been in the room and you describe yourself as, as a, a semi-mature follower of Jesus. You've, you've been around and you've served in church and you, you give and you sacrifice and you make sure your friends and family know they're loved by God. Like you care, you're, you're growing in your spiritual walk. But what Jesus is talking about right here is kind of the fifth zero that I want to cover before we wrap up this series called The Table. Zero unfulfilled callings. That Jesus' desires that every one of us would have a life that consistently, when he calls, we just say yes. Because here's what's true throughout the scriptures, here's what's true even in this passage, though it may be a little bit hard to find. God always uses people that say yes. Always. He doesn't look for the most qualified. He doesn't look for even maybe the most committed at the time, even the most likely at the time, even the most lovable at the time. He just says if you say yes, I'll use you. God always uses people that say yes. Actually, when it comes to calling, when it comes to your life and comes to mine, even the results of that are up to him. The pressure is off. You can plant seeds and make sure that there's zero lost people in your life, but you can't actually save anybody. So the results are up to him. I, I I want our church to grow. I want our church's impact for the kingdom of God to expand way beyond our very very small limited influence. But my identity's not in that. The results are up to him. Jesus builds his church. I trust him with this. And yet at the same time, he always wants to use people that just say yes. They're willing. They're available. They may not have all the right criteria and if you and I looked at them, but they always say yes. And that's. Exactly what it means to be a disciple of Christ. That's why I love when, in verse 26, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, so they make a step towards me, but then I I determine that they have other priorities other than me, they're not my disciple. In the first century Israel, cultural ties, remember we talked about family ties last week, family name, the line you came from, your blood, that was everything. And Jesus is saying, if that takes priority over your identity in me as a child, as a disciple, you're not really a disciple, you're not really following me like you thought you were. If there's things that can consistently get in the way of my relationship with you, you're missing out. And In the ancient world, this would have been incredibly controversial. They're saying, wait, I thought we were supposed to like take identity and take root in our family. And you're saying, eh, it's not actually that important. There's something funny that comes to mind when I read verse 28, though. Maybe it does for you. Maybe you've been in a, in a renovation project that lasted like eternity too long. <laughs> like, like you said, I can figure it out. Like Lindsay and I have recently been binging House Hunters renovation, which is like the much better and improved version because you see what they actually had to do with it. But there's multiple stories where it's like day one and the husband's in there cranking it out. He's like, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna save money, day 95, day 95 honey, we should probably hire some help. It's been too long. Okay. Like you said you could do this, but it's taken a little bit. And I know at least a good chunk of us can identify with the same feeling, but wealthy people in first century Israel would have contributed to civic works and built towers and structures and aqueducts and amphitheaters, all these things to kind of prove their wealth, to show that they had the money in the town, they had influence, what they did matters. I remember being here and living here in high school and I'd have friends come visit from out of town and they'd be like, Why is there Van Andel and DeVos on everything? What is the deal with that? And I'm like, it's just the it's a region, it's the place. And they're like, that doesn't even make sense. i are like, it's actually a person. Their names are real people. In the same way, in first century Israel, there's people like that. They would fund projects and make sure that their name was on the sign so everyone knew that they had contributed. And Jesus is saying, those people, if they were really wealthy, they wouldn't start a project they couldn't finish. If they had counted the cost, they would have made sure everything was in order, that the budget lined up, that they had the funds necessary. I remember driving a couple years ago through downtown Baku, Azerbaijan, which our family lived there when I was a freshman in high school. It's this country that borders Iran, Armenia, and Russia. And it's a small Middle Eastern country, but common super common, that you drive throughout the Zeri countryside and see these enormous mansions, huge, that were totally empty inside. They were like either linoleum or they'd had like one plastic chair in there because the people wanted to say, yeah, we're wealthy, we're important, we matter, massive structures, and they'd be total shells. They couldn't finish the job. They couldn't really count. They hadn't really counted the cost. You could see that it was all basically a sham. And where Luke is writing this, in the exact same region, the people would have been reading this gospel. There was an amphitheater that had collapsed and killed nearly 50,000 people. So when Jesus says this, they're like, yeah, we don't want to do that. He's saying it's important to count the cost. When you say yes, it's important to to know what you're saying yes to. If you've ever been seated in an exit row, which is a common experience for Lindsay, Lindsay and I, we've traveled a few times overseas, and anytime I get seated in an exit row, I'm like, yes, more leg room because of that that 5'8 frame. I need some space, okay? <laughs> Stop judging my leg size. Um, I, I want some space. Like, I want some room to breathe, and every time she sees that, she's like, oh, no all these people's lives are in my hands. <laughs> what if I ruin it, right? Like that's kind of the, the experience, which is normal. There's probably both both camps in this room of like, I never want to see an exit row. And everyone's like, I definitely want to see it in an exit row. But what they do is you always have a flight attendant. If you've flown recently, you know this. they come up and they say, are you willing and able, if in the event of emergency, to operate this exit door and literally save the rest of all these people's lives, are you willing to do that? And you're like... You're like reading your phone or you're on a book already. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, no, I need you to say yes. Like you have to nod your head to them and say, yes, I do. Why? Because they want to make sure you've actually thought about it. You've counted the cost. You know what the yes really means. You understand. And yet God uses people that always say yes. He just has a way of using them. And even as I look at uh, the the last couple verses we read, I think this is so almost humorous of Jesus, but he says in verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have can't be my disciples. See, Jesus is talking to first century Jews. Jews knew what it meant to be generous and to be charitable. They knew what it meant to, at the end of the year, get the tax write-off and throw a few dollars extra in the plate. They knew what it meant to be generally nice and and charitable people. But Jesus is saying something much more radical. He's saying, no, I don't want you just to, to tip me. I want you to give up everything. And as you dig into that word in the Greek, everything means everything. It means like all of possessions, any priorities, any loves, any finances that blocked the way of your relationship with Jesus. And uh, if you read through the Gospel of Luke, the large crowds, they start to disappear. His circle got smaller and smaller and smaller. Jesus' growth strategy was awful, it always got tinier. It just got smaller, it got more concentrated, it got more influential, it got more deep, it got more costly. And he's saying, when you say yes to me, make sure you know what the cost is. Don't just follow me because you grew up doing it. Don't just follow me because it feels right. Don't just follow me because it's a nice way to live. Follow me because you wanna give up everything. You wanna be my disciple. It's going to cost you something. And the crowds would have asked questions like you and I do when we hear a verse like that. Well, I wanna become broke if I give everything away? Like, if I become generous, aren't I eventually going to run out of money? Isn't God going to stop taking care of me? If I only care about lost people in my life, what about me? Isn't Jesus going to keep meeting my need? What if, even worse, what if our church becomes 100% focused on reaching people who aren't in these seats yet? Aren't I going to get forgotten? Don't you, you don't love me anymore? You don't care about me anymore? And yet Jesus models throughout the Gospels that it's precisely, and he even says it, If you lay down your life for my sake, you will find it. If you're willing to lose everything, if you're willing to put it all aside, have no other agendas, have no other callings besides the calling to be my disciple, it's in that you will find real life. It's in that you'll find satisfaction. It's in that that you'll find joy that entertainment and money and sports cannot provide. It's in everything that you gain by following me, and I love the next chapter because it's unlikely people that Jesus uses. He even humbles Himself. If you look in Luke fifteen and have read through it, I know we talked about it even a month or so ago. But the godly character in every one of these—just just look at this for a minute. And this is great to go back and read even later, or make some notes. Luke fifteen depicts God as either a shepherd. The Godly character in, in the first parable is a shepherd. A shepherd was culturally despised, considered gross, normally always smell bad, like they hadn't invented axe bodies for it yet, okay? They were, they were bad-smelling dudes. When you walked in a room, you're like, that smells like a shepherd. I don't even have to look over there. I know a shepherd is there. Culturally, they were way, way low on the totem pole, and yet God identifies in that story as a shepherd. What about the second story, the lost coin, In that day, it's a woman looking for this lost coin. She's pursuing it. She's trying to find it. Yeah, she had probably a nice bank account, but it mattered that there were zero lost coins in her household. And so God, in this story, this character is depicted as a woman chasing after the coin, regardless, chasing it down, making sure. Now, women in first century Israel, second-class citizens, property, couldn't vote, didn't have a voice in court, weren't significant people. They were property, And yet God is depicting that divine character in the parable as being a woman. It was a person that said yes, who was willing to find. It was a shepherd that said, I've got 99 sheep, but I want to make sure there's zero lost sheep, zero lost ones. So I'm going to chase after them. And then the third story, the prodigal son, he runs away and he's still a long way off. We don't know the actual mileage, but we know he's far away. And it's the godly character depicted as a father running with his Remember this is Toga wide open, right? Everyones seeing his business and he's embarrassing himself, and a patriarch, a father, the man of the house to run after his kid like that was culturally taboo. Why are you doing that? That, that kid basically threw up the middle finger to you. Why are you chasing him now? That, that's backwards. And yet Jesus identifies in the story and the parables being that person. He humbled himself and said yes to the Father's calling so that you and I could say yes to his. He counted the cost. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is kneeling down and literally because of stress and physiological conditions, he's sweating blood, he's crying, he's praying, he's petitioning the Father, God, if there's any other way, let me take that way. And yet he says, not my will, I'm gonna say yes to yours. I'm gonna humble myself. I've counted the cost, I understand it's great, but I'm gonna say yes to your calling because you use people that say yes. You expand their influence in ways that they couldn't have done themselves. You stretch their resources more when they say yes to you instead of holding it tightly. So today, what's your yes? What's the yes? Maybe that is in a relationship. Maybe there's honestly, as you sit here today, there's a person that's hurt you, or there's an ex, or there's a boyfriend, or a girlfriend, or a parent, or a grandparent, or a mean uncle, or whoever it is that you know, my yes is just to forgive them. It's to reconcile and to make it right. It doesn't make sense. They don't actually even deserve it, and neither did you. Neither did I. And yet Jesus said, okay, yes, I'm going to make the way. I'm going to pave the way through the cross. Every single person can live in a reconciled relationship with somebody else. Maybe it really has to do with ministry. Maybe you're sitting here today and you've sat here in the the same seats for years and you know that you are called to be a pastor, to serve as a missionary, to serve in some kind of nonprofit sector, to essentially just answer God's call to full-time ministry. And I've got friends and there's people in this room who've left everything else to take up that call. That may be you. Don't count yourself out. God is not looking for perfect people. He called teenage fishermen to do his work, to live out his calling, to make disciples and then trust that ministry to them would have made absolutely no sense. But they all said the same thing. Yes. They all said yes. And they followed him to their death, many of them. So I I don't know what your yes is. I, I do know that I had a really powerful conversation a little over a month ago with my friend Mallory, who's up here leading worship this morning. And she talked to me about her yes. I want you actually to listen in on this story. I want you to capture some of her yes and what God has been calling her to do. And I pray that encourages you, but let's, let's check out her story.
1: My name is Mallory Walker and I started attending the center church in July of 2018 and the reason why i decided to stay at the center after church hopping for quite some time is because i like the effort that went into church every sunday it needed every person who was in the building to be there in order for church to happen so the zeros really hit me at about christmas this past year when i started being the one to set up the zero signs and so i started to look at them a little more after i was the one to put them up and each of them go through and ask myself which of those i was applying to my life and which areas were lacking and two places i was really convicted were zero lost people and zero needs among us and i found that i wasn't doing much to make those true of west michigan and in my life of the people i was coming in contact with and i started to question how i could make those true in my life so post christmas season when i really started to be convicted by those signs and start to ask myself what does this mean for me what is this what is the next step that i need to do with this i didn't necessarily start applying it immediately but the lord started kind of pressing on my heart the nations. that was a passion that has already been stirred in my life in previous years but it started to be something that i felt a conviction to do something with and in may of this past year i applied to go on a six-month mission trip to africa So after I was offered my position, I was given two weeks to make a decision. And I took most of the two weeks because I was really afraid to commit. And I kept asking God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And what I found through that season was that sometimes God speaks in very small ways, in a kind of way to say, I trust you. I give you freedom to do this in the way that you're called, in the way that you experience my calling on your life. I want you to feel free. And as long as you're taking every step to glorify me, I'll, I will bless you in each of your steps and take care of you. I took a leap and said, I prayed about this diligently for five to six weeks, and I have not heard any kind of no. And so I'm gonna just take a leap of faith and trust that my conviction and my calling is what, is, is what God is asking of me. And so I will leave in January and I will be gone for six months. And I would say that even those signs, those zero lost people, the zero needs among us, those have even been more applied since I've said the initial yes. Because now it's been a question of, if I'm taking that to the nations, what am I doing about that here in West Michigan? What am I doing about that with the people I go to school with, the people I work with? And how am I saying yes in smaller ways every single day before I leave? What I found in my life is I just wanna live a life of significance instead of safety. I think God blesses so much his people when they just say yes, when they're willing to step out in faith and step out of their comfort zone.
0: What's your yes? Because it starts small, it really does. I mean, even as Mallory and I got to talking, it was like, well, I started setting up these signs, like you heard, and that's pretty small. And as she kept saying yes, it was that discovery that, wow, God has something much, much bigger than setting up a sign. God wants to do a work in me. And Mallory, I say about, on behalf of our church, you'll never know the impact that that one yes it will have on other people. You'll never understand not only will that affect her and her future family and everything that is a part of her own life, but it'll affect people that she may never rub shoulders with again. Or maybe you will, who knows? What's your yes? What's the thing? What's the, what's the burden? What's the place? What's Who's the person? What's the area? What's the ministry? Where does God want you to say Yes. Sure, that may be serving with hand-to-hand with us. That may be hope unexpected. That may be serving with center kids or students or joining a setup team or doing something else around here, sure, which would be great. That may be your first yes, but count the cost. What does God wanna do? What beyond me may he be doing? Because here's the temptation. We can all decide to not say yes we can decide to be comfortable and to build our own kingdoms around us, to be safe, to be protected, to live out what may feel like meaningful, but it's temporary callings. A nice house, perfect kids, retirement package, new neighborhood, whatever. And those are not bad things, but they're temporary things. And we can choose instead to live out something that's Eternal. We can choose to say, God, I'm just gonna say yes to you. I'm gonna be available, I'm not perfect, I've got a lot of room to grow, but I just wanna be used by you. I want you to say yeah, I wanna say yes to you. To reach lost people, to make sure there's no needs among us, to make sure that no one who walks into our church doors is unconnected from meaningful deep community, to make sure that there are no gods before you in my life, to determine now that that I'm gonna make sure that my calling is fulfilled what's your yes so I want to pray for you and we're going to actually step into a time of communion as just a way to solidify that and to worship through it so I invite you real quick just to bow your heads close your eyes as a way to focus as we pray and I even recognize in this room maybe for you the, the yes is unclear maybe you're still trying to figure that out God is patient and he's kind and he's, he's so faithful he'll help you figure that out others of you just need to take action know it's time to obey his call you know it's time to step in and leave the job behind downgrade the car give the money send send the person whatever it is to say yes to him but because of Jesus's incredible sacrifice I think it'd be a miss as we as we finish this series as we close this out to, to overlook the fact that as we're focusing in as we're praying through this right now that God may be asking you just to say yes to a relationship with him, to surrender your life to him, to say, God, I cannot do this on my own. My yes is to you. We'll figure the rest out in relationship, Jesus, but I just wanna say yes. I wanna be your disciple. I wanna walk away from my sin and walk away from my brokenness and walk away from my bondage and I wanna step into freedom. I wanna surrender to you you know that that's your call today you know that your yes is just to a relationship with Jesus if you would just as a way so I can pray for you and no one's gonna look around or swarm you but just to slip up your hand real quick and say that's me I need to start that relationship today for some of us it's just stepping into that yes stepping into what we already know and so I want to pray over us and ask that God to move through our yes. So God, we just come before you with open hands. We're ready to experience what you have for us. And whatever's on the other side of our yes, would you give us strength and courage? Would you give us boldness? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you're doing? We want to be faithful to you. We want to be open to you. We pray in the strong and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.